I'm Ben Max, executive editor of Gotham Gazette. And I'm Jarrett Murphy, executive editor of City Limits. Gotham Gazette and City Limits are partnering on Agenda 2019, a project to set the stage for what promises to be a transformational and controversial year at the city and state levels of government in New York. We're exploring many of the major political dynamics and policy issues that will be on the table in the year ahead, starting with the fact that Democrats will have complete control of state government in New York, creating a new opportunity for the party to move a long list of legislation on everything from voting reform to abortion protections, to gun control, to rent regulations, to environmental policy, and more. With Manhattan Neighborhood Network, we're bringing you a short series of discussions as part of Agenda 2019, including one today, to look ahead to 2019 in Albany, the seat of state government, and what newly empowered Democrats plan to do. For today's discussion, we'll have two officials who will be part of the new state Senate Democratic majority, one who pulled off an upset victory earlier this year to become a first-time elected official, and another who is a veteran lawmaker and will be the deputy leader of the Senate majority. So... Welcome, soon-to-be Senate Deputy Majority Leader Michael Gennaris. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. So tell us what that means. You're going to be the deputy leader of a new Democratic majority in the state Senate. How do you capture for people how significant that is? I think your intro mentioned it would be transformational. I don't know how controversial it will be. You also added that word. But, <laughs> uh, but uh, it certainly will be transformational. This is the largest Democratic majority in 106 years uh, in New York. 1912 was the last time anything like this happened. And we have been struggling with a very strange dynamic in the Senate for the last decade, at least, where we kept winning elections and having a majority of members uh, elected, but uh, because of internal problems in the Senate. Uh, some Democrats would team up with Republicans. We never actually had control of, of the body. Uh, and we finally have achieved that. And now there's a long list of priorities that have been on the shelf that the people of New York not only want, but had been voting for and been denied. You mentioned some of them. There's a lot more than that. And so it's going to be a very full agenda. I expect it's going to be the most productive session that any of us could remember. So looking back at the election that created this large majority, um, now that you have a few weeks worth of perspective, what do you attribute it to? How did you guys pull this off? What what happened to make this possible? Brilliant strategy. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From the strategy. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I, I also chair the campaign committee. So, <laughs> But honestly, um, look, if you look around the country, you can tell there was a very good election for Democrats everywhere. The turnout was approaching presidential levels, which is very unusual in a midterm. And typically when the turnout is higher, Democrats perform better because it's our constituencies, for whatever reason, that seem more interested in presidential elections than other elections typically. Um, I will say, though, while there was a blue wave everywhere, we really maximized our results here in New York. Uh, we outperformed the top of the ticket in a number of our victories. In the Hudson Valley, where James Skoufis and Jen Metzger are new senators now, they outperformed uh, the votes that Governor Cuomo got uh, in those districts. Uh, and on Long Island, where we have Monica Martinez and John Brooks, uh, Monica, a new member, John Brooks reelected, they outperformed the congressional candidate for our party there. So. We do take pride in having run really good candidates, having run smart campaigns uh, because of the eight seats we picked up, which is historic in and of itself, twice as many as the maximum that had ever flipped in the past. Uh, they were narrow victories. Uh, and so I think we were intelligent about where we dedicated our resources, where we knew that the energy of the grassroots would carry us. Uh, and it was great success. On those narrow victories, as we transition this conversation to talking about the governing, how do those districts and those narrow wins dictate how you will approach governing. How worried 
do you need to be? You know, there's a lot of talk already. Well, Democrats can't go too far because then they'll lose those seats they just picked up. How does that come into your well, equation? Look, first of all, it's an initial matter, and I think what you can expect to see in the first two months, the pre-budget portion of session, is a lot of things that the people have been waiting for and are very popular everywhere. You mentioned your list. Uh, I think protecting women's reproductive rights is popular across the board. Uh, establishing more sensible gun laws, popular across the board. Uh, improving our voting laws so we make it easier to vote, establish early voting, automatic registration, those types of things are popular with everybody. So there's uh, an enormous amount of work that we can do, and I left a lot off the list, uh, right, right away that I think will work for everybody. As you get into some of the things that have a different uh, support regionally around the state, then that's a conversation we're going to have to have with our colleagues. But I will say this, the margin is so large that we don't necessarily need everyone to be in agreement on everything uh, in order for it to pass. And the last time the Democrats had the majority, I wasn't there, but uh, they had a bare majority of 32, which is the minimum number required, and any time one senator didn't want to do something, everything got gridlocked. So we have now 39 uh, or 40, depending on uh, what happens with Simca Felder in Brooklyn, uh, but that's a huge cushion of seven or eight votes that uh, we can not necessarily need unanimity on everything. So you can sort of say to some senators, hey, yeah, do what you, do what you need to do for your district, I mean, that type of thing? Well, or? it's just a question of, as we discussed it as a group, if we have 35 members and four have a problem, those four can vote no and it could still pass. We don't need every vote for passage of everything, and that's going to give a lot of flexibility to leadership to set the agenda uh, in a more authoritative way. What about the relationship with the governor? Um, it, during the period when the IDC was in power, there was suspicion that Governor Cuomo tolerated that, maybe even engineered it. Um, you and the governor's people had some friction during the campaign over where money was being spent. What's the relationship like? Um, his progressive uh, uh, self-image during the campaign, how solid does that look to you? What do you think that's going to be like? Well, I'll, I'll say this. this. The dynamics between the executive and the legislature are less important to me from a personal perspective than what we can get done together. Um, and so if there are issues uh, of agreement and we're going to move forward together and aggressively and, and change some of these laws that have been waiting to be, to be uh, improved for so long, then that's all that matters. So, you know, I, I lived with Jeff Klein in the Senate for how many years and at the end of, uh, of his tenure there was this deal where everyone came together and everyone was wondering how I was going to sit across the table from him and I said, I don't care if I like someone or I hate somebody, if we're on the same page and trying to get things done, then we're going to get things done. And whether someone likes me or doesn't like me is not as relevant as helping the 20 million people who live in this state. Is it going to be the Senate majority's job, maybe in conjunction with the Assembly majority, to hold the governor to his campaign promises, to, to keep pulling him left? You know, it seems like he gravitates towards the center. Is that part of how you, you see the new Senate majority's job? I mean, there's certainly a bunch of folks who, who defeated IDC members who ran on pretty far left platforms. Well, I don't think our job, per se, is to create some kind of broad desire to pull the governor anywhere. Our job is to get done what we campaigned on and what people expect us to do on a host of issues. Now, they tend to be progressive in nature, and I'm very, very progressive in, in a lot of ways. Um, so if the governor agrees with us, who a self-proclaimed progressive himself, then this will be very easy and there won't be much friction. Uh, if there's areas of disagreement, we certainly intend to assert ourselves, and uh, we're there for a reason. We're not there to be anybody's rubber stamp, uh, and so I think you would expect us to stand up and make our case, and there will be a negotiation both with the Assembly and the Governor, and we'll come to resolution. What I will say is the normal dynamic of Albany has been broken, where the Assembly and Senate are in control of different parties, and the playing of one off against the other is part of a strategy to keep things from happening. Uh, and that's what I'm most excited about, is we now have 
uh, partners who say you can't get away with saying you support something and then not having it happen because now everyone is theoretically in agreement. And so we're going to find out in January just how far that's going to go. So you mentioned before there's this first period between inauguration and the budget coming out when some of the, I guess, low-hanging fruit is some term people have used for it. What do you think is sort of, a, for lack of a better phrase, a gimme during that period? Where will the bigger fights be? What, what do we ex expect between now and April? Well, we mentioned some of them, but uh, and, and this is ultimately a decision for Andre Stewart-Cousins, who, by the way, is history-making in her own right as the first female uh, legislative leader in the history of our state. But things that are, we've already spoken about, I feel like I, I could talk about. So we know that voting reform is going to be on the list early. Uh, the RHA um, and women's reproductive rights in general will be part of it. The Child Victims Act, I think, would be something we a lot of us have supported for a long time. I think you're going to see some um, movement on issues related to the immigrant communities uh, of New York. Uh, and guns we mentioned earlier as well. So there's, there's a long list, uh, not all of which I've even gone through, that we have only eight weeks to do if we were talking about a pre-budget window. Um, so our, our docket will be full, and I think the people are going to be impressed that when they came out to vote in record numbers, they actually delivered change to New York. Criminal justice reform? Criminal bail, justice reform discovery. Is important to me. That's my legislation is, uh, exactly. is the gold standard of bail reform that a lot of the advocacy community is advocating. Uh, I would think that that's going to be one of those issues that the governor will either include in his budget, uh, which will become then roped into the budget conversation, or will be in the post-budget um, time frame where issues that are more complicated and need more deliberation will end up. But it's certainly something we intend to address this year. And what what is in the category of a little bit probably more controversial even among Democrats? Uh, even at this point, congestion pricing is still something that that might cause some. Yeah, the, the issue of MTA funding in general is certainly going to be subject of great discussion. Um, I sit on a task force that's issuing a report um, to discuss recommendations, um, and just even sitting on that, uh, everyone can agree the MTA needs money and needs to get corrected, but what that means, where it comes from, is certainly going to be subject of conversation. I'm a supporter of congestion pricing, but a lot of people from the suburbs or even um, in the boroughs outside of Manhattan uh, need to be convinced still, and so there's going to be a lot of work to do in that respect. Uh, the other piece of it is that even if we enact congestion pricing, by all accounts, that's not nearly enough money to fill the hole that the MTA has, and, and with all of that revenue generation, wherever it comes from, we also have to make sure they're spending it wisely because there's not a great history at the MTA of how they spend their money. Uh, but that's going to be an area that we, we spend a great deal of time on. And I don't want to leave here without mentioning the rent loss, which are going to be a huge issue for a lot of us. Uh, they expire in June, uh, and this is the first time in decades when you don't have a, a Republican majority when the laws expire to uh, do the bidding of the landlords instead of the tenants. And it was always uh, a majority overwhelmingly from outside New York City Rent regulation, of course, is 90 to 95 percent uh, within the city limits. Uh, and so we're finally going to have people representing tenants making these decisions. It's going to be a lot of progress in that as well. Is that one going to be something that's more tinkering, or do you expect sweeping reform? I expect very significant reforms. We're going to push back a lot of the uh, gaping loopholes that the real estate industry has created on vacancy decontrol, vacancy bonuses, preferential rents, uh, the MCI process, which is the major capital improvement process. There are tools that landlords have had to abuse tenants and essentially force them out of the apartments because the way the laws are written, when the apartment becomes vacant, the rents go up. Uh, and that has created an incentive for landlords to drive tenants out of their homes to get that advantage, uh, and we're going to put a stop to that. Single-payer health care, yeah, advocates who want that, people who want that, are they likely to be disappointed this year? I hope not. Uh, it's an issue a lot of us support and are going to roll up our sleeves and, and 
move that ball as far down the field as we can. That is a complicated issue. I said that once before, and, and people um, were questioning why. But it is among the most complicated things we have to deal with. There's questions about if, whether a federal waiver is necessary, and with this administration, good luck on that front. Uh, there are some things we can do without a federal waiver, uh, but we are also getting um, concern expressed by uh, traditional progressive uh, allies. So there's elements of organized labor that are concerned that their benefits would be reduced in such a situation. So I think these are things we can work through, but we have to do the work to work through them. The dynamics have changed in terms of Democrats controlling the state Senate. But does that mean that you will operate the levers of government and the processes of government in a similar way as the past, but it's just new people in power? Or can we expect things to change in ways like more public hearings, more oversight hearings, a more transparent budget process? Are any of these types of things going to change, or is it just yes, newly, new I people so. in power? No, look, our intention... I don't know how many of your viewers are Game of Thrones fans, but I like to, to use the, uh, the metaphor that they used, which is to say we're not here to just be the new spokes on the wheel. We want to break the wheel of Albany uh, and re reframe the way people think about it and give them uh, a point of pride in their state government. So there will be changes. Now, that being said, there's a Democratic majority for a reason, because that's what the electorate wants. They want our agenda advanced. So uh, you're not going to open up the process to let Republicans have equal say in what we vote on as Democrats, obviously, because they're a distinct minority, and that's not what the voters want. Uh, but in terms of transparency in the process and more hearings, you could certainly expect to see that. One of the biggest developments since the election has been the announcement of the Amazon deal. You've expressed some serious reservations about it. Since the deal's unveiling, have you learned anything that has made you feel better or worse about it? Is that something that you plan to take any action on when the new term begins? Worse, much worse. The more I learn, the worse it gets. Um, and I think a lot of us have been educated about Amazon's failings as a company, as it relates to their workforce as it relates to their uh, relationship with the immigrant community in this country. They now have a partnership with ICE to provide facial recognition technology. These are very concerning things about them as an institution. Uh, now the project uh, specific to Queens is also bad and getting worse. So we, we're learning that the $3 billion in subsidies we talk about are, are going to end up being more than that because this, uh, this parcel of land is in what's called an opportunity zone, which means there's additional tax benefits beyond the $3 billion that are going to go for that. Some of these sites may be brownfield sites, which is going to layer on even more tax credits on top of the $3 billion they're already getting. Uh, and they have shown a little willingness to reset the conversation and talk about not accepting some of these subsidies uh, and trying to be more of a good corporate citizen and talk about investing in the community they want to join as opposed to sucking the money out of it and just taking over. Can you stop it? That's a good question. The state and the city are moving mountains to try and avoid any approvals. They're bypassing the city's Euler process. They are suggesting that they don't need budgetary authority, at least this year, from the state legislature. There's an open question about the Public Authorities Control Board and when and what needs to go before it. Everyone's pouring over the, the regulations and the rules to see what's required. Uh, at some point, there will certainly be approvals necessary. The Excelsior program, which is funding a lot of these credits, needs to be reauthorized and reappropriated. Uh, what we're gathering is that the state intends to push that off two, three years down the road in the hopes that this is already moving by the time that happens. There will come a time when we have something to say about it, and you could rest assured I'm going to say something about it when that time comes. There's also things we have learned that allows us to set the stage going forward in a better way. So this idea that Amazon required non-disclosure agreements from all the 
cities and states that were bidding is outrageous. You have a, a private company dictating to a government what it's allowed to tell its people about the money it wants to spend on their behalf is, is outrageous and crazy. I, I'm going to be introducing legislation to ban that practice. Uh, and there's this larger issue of insider dealing in the real estate world. We prohibit insider trading as it relates to socks and securities because it's unfair for someone who has confidential knowledge to use that to enrich themselves at other people's expense. There's no reason the analysis is any different as it relates to real estate, and yet we're hearing reports that Amazon employees purchased apartments in the week before the announcement. Maybe that's a crazy coincidence, but uh, if it is, then they don't have nothing to worry about. But if it isn't, that should be prohibited, and I'll be advancing legislation to do that as well. Well. Lots more to discuss, but I think we're going to leave it there. Soon to be Deputy Majority Leader of the State Senate, Michael Janaris, thanks so much for, for being with us. Thanks a lot. And we will be right back. Joining us now is Senator-elect Julia Salazar. Senator-elect Salazar, you are one of 15 new senators uh, going to be taking power in Albany. Tell us about the district you're representing and a little bit about your backstory. How did you, how did you get here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you for having me. I am going to be representing the 18th district, which is in North Brooklyn, including Bushwick, Williamsburg, Greenpoint, Cypress Hills, a little bit of Bed-Stuy. Um, I first became involved in electoral politics in, in the district through Debbie Medina's campaign, um, who challenged Senator DeLon uh, two years ago and um, in, in the previous election cycle as well. Uh, she ran um, openly as a democratic socialist, a truly grassroots campaign, uh, really focused on um, the, the outside influence that the real estate lobby has in um, electoral politics and, uh, you know, as a result, refused to take money from developers uh, or, or for-profit real estate. Uh, I was really inspired by her campaign and was working full-time as a community organizer. Uh, early this year um, when I was approached by friends who were also involved in her campaign and who are involved in the Democratic Socialists of America, which I've been active in for the last two years, about, about running. Uh, and so it was, um, it was through conversations with community members and people who I, I knew through um, my activism and organizing that I, was, um, I finally committed to run in the spring, and it, it uh, was a sprint <laughs> of a race, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited to have the opportunity to represent our constituents in Albany. And you won in the Democratic primary. You were one of several sort of upset wins over sitting uh, incumbent Democrats. Um, say a little bit more about sort of your top campaign promises that you now take to Albany as things that <laughs> the people that voted for you expect you to fight for. Yeah, uh, the number one issue in our in in my race was the rent laws uh, which we all know are up for renewal in June uh, we really want to fight for rent laws that will finally work for tenants um, instead of just for developers uh, it's going to mean fighting to end deregulatory policies like vacancy decontrol uh, vacancy bonuses um, fighting to uh, sharply limit or eliminate uh, MCI induced rent increases and and even fight uh, for things like expanding the Emergency Tenant Protection Act um, to, to fighting for good cause evictions to make sure that people are able to stay in their homes um, and, and then all around uh, demanding uh, stronger enforcement of, of even the currently existing rent laws. Uh, that's, that's the most pressing issue for my district, uh, but I think, 
I think it's definitely increasingly affecting New Yorkers statewide. Uh, we also want to, early in the session, uh, pass the Reproductive Health Act, um, as well as uh, the CCCA, or the Comprehensive Contraceptive Care Act, uh, to make sure that, uh, that New Yorkers uh, finally have access to uh, the, the reproductive care um, that, that so many people have not um, had access to due to income um, or, or lack of resources. So you were an organizer turned candidate, now senator-elect. I'm sure that it's been, you said a sprint, also a learning curve. Um, since the election, what's the transition been like? What has surprised you most about this period between winning and actually taking power? I think uh, I've, I've been very pleasantly surprised um, by how welcoming my, my colleagues are uh, as coming in um, as a 27-year-old um, and first-time first candidate. Um, I and and as a democratic socialist, uh, even as someone who is definitely on the left pole of, of the conference, um, I've been. It's really been delightful for me to get to work with my colleagues, um, and and I'm I'm grateful for how how welcoming uh, my my new colleagues have been. It's it's an interesting it's interesting to be entering the state senate in this moment where we're also uh, we also have such a strong democratic majority for the first time in a long time um, so while it's it's a new experience for me uh, it's also a, uh, a particularly a transitional time for all of us even even those who have um, are more senior senators so you mentioned being sort of on the left pole of of even the Democratic conference, which is mostly pretty progressive. And as I mentioned, a lot of these other primary winners were were challenging folks from the left. Um, mostly those members of the IDC. Uh, Senator Lon was not one of them. But um, how how are you going to approach that? I mean, are, do you expect to be sort of an outspoken voice, calling on your colleagues to you know that they have to really stay true to the things they ran on? Do you think you're going to have to play some of that role and really trying to pull your conference uh, left? Yeah, I, I look forward to playing that role uh, to a degree, to urging my colleagues, for example, to make the commitment, as I'm seeing more of them make, uh, to not take money from, from the real estate lobby or from private interests. Um, I, I think that I'm, I'm looking forward to playing that role, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure if, um, if it's going to be demanded of me, because uh, what I've found in conversations with colleagues so far um, and, and from our uh, conference retreat this week, it's, it's that uh, people are, um, that, that senators are really responsive to the needs of their districts and, and recognizing whether it's through this, um, you know, blue, blue wave in New York uh, and the victories that we saw in, in the primaries um, or, or otherwise uh, that the electorate is demanding um, more progressive stances uh, and that we actually fight to advance progressive legislation that's been held up for a long time. You've been named the incoming chairperson of the subcommittee on women's health. What will that involve? Uh, it's because it's a brand new subcommittee. Um, it's, it's still uh, relatively unclear, but uh, I know that I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to to focus on passing the Reproductive Health Act, also the CCCA, uh, but I think it will also extend to many of the public health issues that disproportionately affect women um, as well. So, so I think 
there's a tendency to associate women's health with reproductive health, uh, but it goes it goes far beyond this. Um, and I'm excited to to work on a, a range of issues, including um, you know mental health, including environmental issues that disproportionately impact impact women um, as well, especially in my own district. Uh, I want to ask you about about the governor and pulling him left, but, but before that, because something you just said, reproductive rights is something where you've had a, a personal shift in in your views and. There were also some other things that came up during the campaign about um, how you were telling your story. And, and so where is where is all that now? Where are you now? Are there things you feel like you still need to prove or do or or uh, or is that all behind you? I mean, how are you thinking about about that? Yeah, I think um, I'm excited to have the opportunity to um, to actually get to work uh, so much of of um, a campaign, while it's it's necessary, what we're talking about, whether it's it's narrative or or even just speaking about platform and what we're going to do, uh, while it's while it's essential, um, it's it it's difficult to not be able to actually get get to work on these things and demonstrate um, our commitment to them. Right. So what I'm really looking forward to is having the opportunity to um, demonstrate through my work in the legislature uh, that that I'm serious about about these issues um, and and be able to to show who I am um, to to my constituents uh, and to my colleagues as well. Do you feel just to stand that for a second do you feel that the media mistreated you during the campaign or do you feel some of the problems were self-inflicted? Hmm. Yeah I think that uh, I was I do think I was subjected to extraordinary scrutiny for a state senate candidate and for a new candidate uh, even even people who um, I, I, I would say are political opponents of mine, um, I think acknowledged that this for a state senate race, this received um, completely <laughs> completely uh, extraordinary attention. Um, I, w I went to the UK, for example, immediately after my primary, the week after for UK Labour Party conference uh, in Liverpool. Uh, where I expected to be relatively anonymous, uh, and people recognized me there, which was very, very peculiar um, and and surprising for me. I think that that alone was an indicator not of uh, of who I am really as a candidate, but of the extraordinary attention that the race received. So I think I think if anything, it was just. Um, a, a higher level of scrutiny than I could have expected, especially as um, as a brand new candidate. And and so, does that mean that that you don't feel like you did anything that you regret, or are there things that now you feel like you you know you do want to prove to to your constituents, especially? Yeah, I think what it demanded for me was to uh, just think carefully about my own, how, how my own narrative, um, uh, the significance of my own narrative, right, uh, as a candidate. And it gave, it gave me the opportunity to, um, I think, articulate that better. Um, I, I think if, if I would change anything, it would have been to be more prepared for that. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that going into Going into session, but also into the next the next election, um, I'll have had that experience and be able to better communicate um, and more clearly communicate with um, with 
with my constituents. So talking about the session and the governor, obviously Democrats control the Senate, there's a lot of power there, but the governor still has a lot of authority. In terms of keeping him honest in his progressive goals, um, how do you see you and other advocates slash uh, elected officials doing that? What's the mechanism? He's won a landslide victory. He's in there for another four years. How do you hold him to his promises? And we should note that you cross-endorsed with his primary opponent, Cynthia Nixon, as, as yeah. context here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, even, even as Governor Cuomo won um, a, a, a huge victory, uh, I think it, it, I think that what that race demanded, what the governor's race demanded, um, was for him to actually confront issues that he didn't previously have to take um, a, a very clear stance on. Um, and I think with the deadline coming up in June on the rent laws, for example, um, with the L train shutdown coming up in April, uh, these are things that previously the governor may uh, have have not had to pay attention to, but are naturally coming to a head. And so, I think that is that is one thing is is he naturally is going to face pressure to to make decisions about the MTA, um, about I think about congestion pricing, um, different funding mechanisms, um, and uh, as as a legislator, I'm I'm hopeful that particularly with the majority that we have. Uh, and, and such a progressive majority that we will have more leverage uh, to, to pressure Governor Cuomo when, when necessary, um, and, and certainly around uh, the budget as well. We're going to have to leave it there. Julia Salazar, State Senator-elect Julia Salazar, thank you. And thank you for watching Agenda 2019 on Manhattan Neighborhood Network. For more on this series, you can visit mnn.org, gothamgazette.com, or citylimits.org. From the Manhattan Neighborhood Network Studios, I'm Ben Max. And I'm Jarrett Murphy. Goodbye. Goodbye.